podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carol Madgett. How are you, sir? Melting. Yes, I believe it is 39 degrees where you currently sit. It's a, a sprightly 21 where I am. We had a hot day yesterday, but uh, not nothing like 31 degrees, though I did struggle to get through the day. Uh, Guy Drinkle is sitting in the north where it is 34 degrees and he is currently half man, half puddle. So that is the state of the AI scouted crew today. And today's podcast is a little bit different. We're just going to do something random. Guy has a random club generator and a random nations generator. And we're going to randomly generate clubs and nations and talk about great players or our favorite players from those countries. But before we do that, Carl, let's take a question from the Discord group, which is from Harry Welchy, who wants to know how ridiculously good was the Brazil front three from the 2002 World Cup and a little bit of a chat about that team in particular. So let's start with that front three. Ronaldinho as the 10, Ronaldo and Rivaldo as the front two. That is one of the great front threes in history. And what's often overlooked is that sitting on the bench was a young Kaká um, who would obviously go on to succeed them as the best player in the world for a couple of years. This was a very, very talented Brazil squad, but it's worth remembering this Brazil squad is somewhat unloved in their homeland because they were seen as a boring team because they played a back three. They played with two sitting midfielders. It was the fullbacks and the front three that did sort of the attacking stuff, but they were primarily a defensive team under primarily a defensive manager in Scolari. Yes, I think the uh, two sitting central midfielders was something that they didn't really appreciate at the time. Um, obviously, they'd you know, we've gone through that phase of the the four two 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 as well with Dunga, and again, people were not really keen on having that not all out attack, not everybody being a really good ball player. Uh, certainly from that that nation at the time, with the romanticism that there was about it. But I think probably victory in the World Cup final is a is a good way to try and turn people in your favour and see that, you know, the balance was much more important at that period of time that they're utilising the skill sets that they had, especially with those wing backs. There was they were something else at that time, those wing backs. There were plenty of nations at that World Cup and previously who played with a back three and wing backs, but nobody played it like those two did. And it was just that fun three, like you say, they they were sensational. I mean Ronaldinho at his peak, I think, is probably the most skillful player I've ever seen in my life um, mm. in, in the flesh, you know, in the stadium sort of thing. He's, he was just 
just a, a ridiculous thing to watch at times. He really was. Um, Ronaldo, as far as I'm concerned, at his peak, there hasn't been a better forward. Yeah, I don't know that there's ever been a player as talented as Ronaldinho, like naturally gifted. Um, certainly for me, the most enjoyable player I've ever seen. And if there is someone who was more naturally gifted than him, it is Ronaldo. And, you know, you look at his run from PSV to Barcelona to Inter and what he achieved in, in, you know, a four year span was obscene. Then he obviously starts having the injury issues. And by the time he gets to this World Cup, he's already had some very serious injuries. He's not. He's not the full Ronaldinho experience, but, or sorry, Ronaldo experience, but he does go on to obviously have a great World Cup, having barely played at club level for the previous three years. You're talking about 24 games in three seasons, eight, zero, and 16. He'd missed so much football and there were huge, huge question marks over him going into this World Cup. And obviously, at the previous World Cup, that's where a lot of the question question marks about him started. With, you know, with the issue before the final, and he went back to Inter. He had a great start to the season. Then he gets hurt. Then he gets hurt again, and all of a sudden he goes into this World Cup as something of an unknown, but ends up as the the Golden Boot winner. Um, of course, just before these World Cup finals begin. He, they lose their captain in Emerson, the midfielder from, I think he was a, either Roma or Juventus at the time. He played for both of those under Capello. But the initial plan was an Emerson, Gilberto Silva double pivot in midfield, two defensive players. When he got hurt, uh, Janino of Middlesbrough fame came into the team. He played in the group stages, but then later on it was Cleberson who would obviously go on to play for Manchester United and was, again, primarily a ball-winning midfielder. He came into the team next to Gilberto Silva. And that's sort of where they found their groove, was once he came in and those two could provide a platform, all of a sudden you started to see Cafu and Carlos take more risks going forward and be more almost out-and-out wingers rather than wing-backs. Um, and obviously you had a very strong back three. Lucio is the legend of a couple of clubs, uh, notably Inter Milan, uh, obviously played for Bayer Leverkusen and Bayern Munich as well. Ed Nielsen, who had a good career in Europe with Lyon, Barcelona, uh, a failed spell at Villarreal before going back to Brazil. And, um, Rocky, Rocky Jr., who, was a little bit of an enigma, was brilliant with Palmieri's in his homeland, came across to Europe, joined AC Milan. It didn't really work. He had a failed loan at Leeds. He had a failed loan at Siena. He went to Bayer Leverkusen. It didn't really work from there. It's a strange career that he had because when he joined Milan, he was 24, and he looked like he was going to become you know, a, the next great Brazilian centre-back. He was a player not playing regularly at club level, and here he is starting for the team that goes on to win the World Cup. Yeah, um, you look at what they achieved and how their careers went in terms of consistency, and you'd say Luthio and uh, and he were polar opposites, really. Mm. But, but in this system, in this three, they really did work well. 
And I think Ed Nielsen was a really big part of that. Like he played defensively field for quite a long time. Yeah. Um, still doing so in Spain, of course, as well, but played in the middle of the back three was almost like allowing those two to do their thing in terms of support and forward play. They were, like you say, a very uh, defensive set team in terms of everyone at the positions and work rate was there and everything was very, very organized. But when Brazil were in possession, when they were looking to open teams up, how often did we see Luis in particular just running forward and things would have to get out of his way? You know, that was a big part of his game, which was at the time, not too many centre-backs were capable of doing that. Um, not not something you would see on the international stage with any great regularity anyway. People like Sol Campbell certainly did so a few times. And if, if the teams were playing with the of older sweeper system, then you would still see it, but not really in terms of just a centre-back. Um, so that was a, a big notable thing from that team. And I think Cleverson was a really important because it was, it was, was it Van Petter started coming in for Janino at the start as well instead of Cleverson? It was only after a little while Cleverson with sort of a bit more running power and a bit more box-to-box about him came in and sort of made a really, really big impact uh, in terms of their ability to control games from an out-of-possession point of view as well. Um, but most of that stuff is not so much forgotten as can be overlooked when you see when they were at their best during that World Cup was all about the goal scoring, the movement off the ball, combination play between sort of four players in particular, and even probably the, the players who sort of came off the bench during some of those matches to give them a bit of a late boost. Let's say they would come on and look really, really talented, fresh, and all the rest of it. And it, it did make a big difference. They definitely had really good depth. Um, maybe not quite at that Ronaldinho Ronaldo level, but not a billion miles away from it compared to most other international teams. Yeah, exactly. And of course, there was controversy going into this World Cup because they left Romario out for the second World Cup in a row. Um, he'd been injured for the first one, but he was adamant he could be fit enough to play. He was in great form at club level come twenty uh, come 2002, but he was left out for disciplinary issues. And he made it known he was very unhappy. And I think that's because he was such a popular player in the homeland. That's part of why maybe there was some negativity around this team, uh, more towards Scalari than the actual group of players. But I mean, you mentioned Lucio and his carrying of, of the ball. And we see Joel Matip do it now. And it's still quite a rare thing to see a central defender pick the ball up and just decide I'm taking this 40 yards and God bless anyone that tries to stop me. And Lucio was doing that back 20 years ago um, when it was even rarer. But yeah, I mean, like you said, it's, it's the attack that makes this team. Ronaldinho really starting to make a name for himself in Europe at that point um, with Paris Saint-Germain. Obviously he'd move on to Barcelona the following year and, his ascent to being the best player in the world sort of took off. But at this point, he was still just this uber-talented player that there were some question marks over at a PSG. Rivaldo, at this point, was rivaling Zidane for the best player on the planet. Um, he was He had a sensational run at Barcelona, but they moved him on this summer, I think thinking he was probably at the end of his his peak, and they may have been right. This may have been the last great moment from him. He does go on and have success with Olympiacos and a few other clubs a couple of years later, but he was 30. He was, you know, seen as having had his best days. 
And like I said earlier with, with Ronaldo, it was, is he fit? What, what kind of player is he now? He clearly doesn't look the same physically. He doesn't have the same sort of explosive burst. But what he did have was he had an elite footballing intelligence, his ability to know where the space was going to be, to time his runs, his technical ability obviously is not in question. It was always a sensational level. But, you know, that front three before the World Cup wasn't being held up as like, this is the team to beat. These three players are the three to stop because each of them had question marks over them. Yes, for sure. And I think Ronaldinho especially, because like you say, he was still playing um, off off the biggest radar, let's say. Um, PSG at that time were nothing like what they are now. This was just a run-of-the-mill French league, run-of-the-mill French team at the time, more or less. There was a big Brazilian influence on that squad, but not all of them amazing players by any stretch of the imagination. And you know, even in, in the group stage of this World Cup, he started the first two. He was subbed in both of them. He didn't start the third game once they were pretty much through already. So it was still a case of he'd, he'd, he'd won a place, but he wasn't, a, you know, a guaranteed must be in, always going to be there. He had to perform. He had to put out some really big um, uh, performances and obviously the end product that he had in his game at the time. You think of the other players who were in the squad there. Um, Louis Jao was at that time still thought of being on the verge of going on to be like a really, really big forward for them. Mm. They still had Adilson there. Janino that you mentioned already, Cacao was on the verge of coming through as well. He was only 20 at the time of the World Cup here. And um, Nielsen as well, who we've spoken about quite a few times. And at yeah. that point, he was at Real Betis. He wasn't there too long at that point. But um, he was maybe already in evidence that he wasn't going to be the player that they had hoped that he was when, when signing. But I think he was there, what, three years at this point, something like that. So he was well established and he'd had over 50 caps for for Brazil at that point. So it was a really, really strong squad. And even without just those attacking players, you look through the rest of them who didn't play a really, really good part. They're still solid, top league, really good sides players throughout that. Junior would be the backup left wing back, basically. Van Beto I mentioned as well. All three goalkeepers are pretty much legendary names in, in yeah. the game. All three of them. Um, so it, this was a, a very, very good squad now that we look back on it. But not necessarily, like you say at the time, you know, people like Belletti, like you mentioned him to people now, and they say, oh, yeah, Barcelona, and a really good player. He was still in Brazil at the time. He was the right wing-back backup to Cathal, obviously, but only 10 caps heading into it. He was still at Sao Paulo, loads of them still at Gremio and Corinthians and the rest of it. So it was not necessarily the the pinnacle of, of football going into it, but obviously Scolari got this mix absolutely right. He did. Scolari absolutely nailed it. And it's worth talking about him. This is a guy who, prior to getting the Brazil job, only a year before the World Cup, had basically been a journeyman manager. Like, he had bounced around. He'd never spent much time in any job. He was at Grêmio for three years. That's the longest stint he had everywhere, had anywhere. He went CSA, Juventud, Brazil de Poletas, Al Shabib. Uh, Pelotos, Juventud again, Gremio, Goas, Alquadizia, Kuwait, Coritibo, Krishuma, Alali, Alcadesa, uh, Gremio again for three years, uh, 
Jubilo Awati in Japan, Palmieri's for two years, Cruzeiro for a year, and then he gets the Brazil job. And it is something of a shock that he gets the job because it's not like he had a tremendous track record of success. He'd won the Brazilian League with Grêmio, but that was sort of it. That's all. And sorry, he won the, the Copa Libertadores with Grêmio as well. I should should say, but that's six and seven years before he gets the Brazil job. He was something of an outsider getting the job, um, but he, he goes on to to perfectly cultivate this squad in such a short period of time and lead them to the World Cup. And, you know, when you look back at the results, they obviously beat Turkey 2-1, and this is a game that's probably most famous for an incident involving Rivaldo, where a ball is kicked at his leg and he goes down holding his face. It's, you know, something that brought great embarrassment, I think, on the World Cup. Uh, they win that game 2-1. They beat China 4-0. They beat Costa Rica 5-2. Into the uh, knockout stages, they beat Belgium 2-0. And, you know, you look at that Belgium team, and other than Daniel Van Boyten and Mark Wilmots, there's not, it's not really a who's who, you know, compared to what we've come to expect from Belgium in the last 10 years or so. Uh, then they obviously play England and they beat them 2-1. That's the game with the infamous Ronaldinho free kick that David Seaman misjudged or whatever. Um, then they beat Turkey again, uh, 1-0. This time there are no red cards. There's less play acting. And then in the final, they beat a German team who I think at the time were probably heavily favoured to beat them. But it's not exactly a, a classic German team either. Uh, Oliver Kahn, a back three of Linke, Karsten Ramelow, and uh, Christoph uh, Metzelder, worse, uh, less said about him, the better. Torsten Frings, who I loved. Dietmar Hamann, who was obviously a Liverpool player. Jens Jeremies and Marco Boda, who I loved as well, as the, the four across. Bernd Schneider as a ten. And Miroslav Klosa and Oliver Neuville as the, um, as the front two. That was a team missing Michael Balak, who was suspended from the final, uh, for picking up two yellow cards. Oliver Bierhoff, Jared Asamoah and Christian Ziege, formerly of Liverpool, coming off the bench. Like it's not a who's who of German players either, but they'd had a good run to the final. Oliver Kahn was, Probably the player of the tournament to that point. The defence was working well. There were really hard grafters in midfield. And the feeling was they'd be able to just outgraft Brazil and outfight them. But Brazil really showed their mettle in that final. It's two goals from Ronaldo that win the tournament for them. Uh, what game did any games, does any game stand out to you? What do you want to go from, go, go, go to from there? I think a point about Scolari, I mean, you ran through his teams there. Those, First jobs there before the three-year stint at Grêmio. That was 10 years of his career, and that was 14 jobs. So I think that kind of displays the, the depth of what you're talking about, being a journeyman manager. This was someone who sort of kind of almost looks like he just took whatever job was available and just learned and obviously gradually climbed his way up the, the ladder a little bit, wasn't afraid to go overseas and take maybe jobs out of the spotlight to try and, again, improve himself there. But that first 
successful spell at Gremio is basically what he's made him because he's not gone. Uh, there was a little spell at Bunyodko when I think the the entire country was trying to put a lot of um, money into football and trying to attract a lot of people over to that region. But apart from that, it's been pretty much top tier sides either in his home nation or obviously on the international scene as well. So it was quite something for him to pick this squad and be like quite strong-minded and not really take into account the media in Brazil is obviously a ferocious thing when it comes to World Cup squad selection. I mean, there have been countless instances of players either getting in or not getting in based on what they push and, and how the public reacts to that. So it was a pretty strong-willed environment in that squad, you would imagine, given you know, he's a pretty unflappable character, isn't he? Uh, and I think that that was probably what we saw from Brazil throughout most of that early stages of the World Cup, at least. I mean, I remember the game against China was like, people were talking about oh, how good they were, but actually China were an abomination in that World Cup as a, as a football team. Like, they were properly rubbish. Like So it, it, when you get into the knockout stages and there, it's like very, very tight, tense games against okay, but fairly mediocre teams in terms of standing on the world stage. Like, even the Turkey squad was probably the best team that they played in terms of those individual um, levels that those players were at. But even then, like, Hassan Sash, I mean, he had a great three years, but that's probably it for his entire career. Emre and Yildir Vastok were, like, really, really talented players. But again, not not ones who you'd ever say, like, were among the best in the world. Um, Korkmaz, really experienced defender, two-guy, really controlled midfielder, Rusty Rekbear probably still playing now at 82 years of age. He was I mean, great at the time. Yeah, yeah. These are all like really well-known, really good players, but you would never say that any of them were like, oh, this is a player who probably should have won like three Champions League medals. No. The only exception there probably being Hakan Suka. And by that point, Suka was obviously beyond his, his prime anyway. So. But Hakan Suka is an interesting one because he scored for fun in the Turkish League. At Galatasaray, he was an absolute machine. But whenever he left Galatasaray, it just didn't happen for him. So he, he does well at um, Sakaraspor and Bursaspor early in his career. Goes to Galatasaray and bangs in goals. Goes to Torino, flops. Goes straight back to Galatasaray. Annihilates everybody for five years. Goes to Inter Milan, flops. Goes to Parma, struggles. Goes to Blackburn, struggles goes back to Galatasaray and scores goals for fun. He was a tremendous player for, for the country, but at club level, he really did struggle uh, any time he left the the confines of the Turkish League. He's actually had a fascinating life, and he's somebody worth looking up to, or looking up what he's been doing um, since his career ended. Um, he works as an Uber driver. In America, all of his homes, businesses, and bank accounts in, in Turkey have all been seized by the Turkish government. Uh, he lives in exile in San Francisco. So do look him up. It, it's really, really interesting uh, what his how his life has worked out. But like you said, I mean, they they weren't playing the best of the best. That England team. I mean, there's good players in it, without doubt, but you, you look at the English eleven. David Seaman, well past his best. Danny Mills was the right back because Gary Neville was in, injured. Uh, Rio Ferdinand and Saul Campbell. Rio was only really establishing himself at that point and was still very error-prone. Saul was 
probably one of the very best centre-backs in the world at that point. You had Ashley Cole at left-back, obviously a great player, but still developing at that point. Beckham on the right of midfield. Nicky Butt was starting in central midfield. Couldn't get a start for United, but he was starting for England. Paul Scholes, obviously a great player. Trevor Sinclair was starting left wing. And Sinclair, then the Liverpool... Sinclair was in that squad because everybody else was injured. Yeah. That was, that was meant to be Kieran Dyer's role initially. He got injured. Danny Murphy got called up and then he got injured and then it ended up being Sinclair. Yeah. And then you've got Michael Owen and Emil Heskey up front. And coming off the bench, the aforementioned Kieran Dyer, who, like you said, wasn't fit. He was a throw, like a gamble to even include him in the squad. Uh, Darius Vassell. Remember him? Yeah, I remember being really annoyed that he kept getting brought on instead of Fowler. And then Teddy Sheringham, who was 36 at the time, well past his best. Like this wasn't, this wasn't a particularly good time for football. It must be said. Um, this was a fairly crappy World Cup overall. I think the experience of it wasn't great because the games were on at weird times. Like there were eight and nine a.m. kickoffs in the UK and Ireland. I remember watching the Ireland games before work, you know, so that'll sort of give you an idea of the times they were kicking off at. You're going into work for seven o'clock to watch the game and then do, do your day's work. The best squad in this World Cup was Italy's, and we know what obviously happened with them in the way that they were mm. knocked out. But their squad was probably the one which was packed with the most elite-level talent. Buffon and Del Piero and Maldini, Cannavaro and Nesta was in it, and Vieri and Toldo, and all of those. They were all in that squad. Totti and Doni and Inzaghi and Gattuso, they were, everybody was there. But obviously the way they got knocked out was, well, it was something. It was something. It was. I mean, it, it, it was such a strange World Cup as well, because obviously France come in having won the World Cup in 98. They win the Euros in 2000. It's most of the same squad are back for another go at this. And they lose to Senegal in the opening game. The worst, one of the worst things that ever happened to Liverpool Football Club, because we signed El Chouf and Salif Dio. Um, they draw with Uruguay. And they get beaten by Denmark. Um, Spain had a good team at the time, obviously not the, the team that would have emerged six years later, but it was a good team. They topped the group fairly comfortably. Uh, South Korea topped a group that had the United States, Portugal and Poland. Uh, Ireland came through a group that was topped by the Germans. Um, then the Irish, then Cameroon and Saudi Arabia. Uh, we drew a Cameroon. We drew with the Germans and we beat the Saudis 3-0. Uh, England came second in their group. Sweden, England, Argentina and Nigeria. So Argentina obviously had a very low point as well. And like you said, the Italians had a great squad, but even they struggled through their group. They beat Ecuador. They lost Croatia, who didn't qualify for the knockouts. And they drew at Mexico, who topped the group. Uh, Japan, Belgium, Russia and Tunisia topping the final group. The Germans beat Paraguay, the US, South Korea. That was their run to the final. Yeah, it was the easiest one ever. Ireland, Cameroon, Saudi Arabia, Paraguay, the United States, South Korea. And like that that's that's ridiculous that that was their run. Um South Korea had knocked out Italy 
in questionable circumstance, had knocked out Spain, also in questionable circumstance. Um, yeah, just a mess. Ireland had lost to that Spanish team. Uh, England beat Denmark and then lost Brazil. Sweden beat Senegal. Japan beat Turkey. No, sorry, Turkey beat Japan. And I remember that was a bit of a surprise because after the South Korea-Italy game, I think everybody expected that one way or another Japan were going through. And maybe they just couldn't put them through because of what had happened in the, in the Italy game. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a bizarre time. And, you know, we had a couple of sudden death games. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. Let's definitely talk about those. So we had three of them, uh, in the knockout phases. We have South Korea, Italy. We have Senegal, Sweden, and then Turkey, Senegal as the three sudden death games. How far, how deep down into the bin should Golden Goal Extra Time have gone? And maybe more importantly, would you put Silver Goal Extra Time as worse or slightly better than the Golden Goal rule? Right. So let me, let Silver Goal was if you, if there was a goal in the first half, first half, you still had until half time to find another equalizer. Yes. And then it was over. And a golden goal obviously ended straight away. So the first time I can ever remember this being a thing was the Euro 96 final. Yeah. Um, the Germans beat the Czechs. In Oliver Bierhoff. Yeah. Yeah. In international games. Yeah. It's the first time I can ever remember. So that game obviously ended 1-1, went to extra time and Oliver Bierhoff scored the winner in the 95th minute. And I remember thinking at that, even though I was delighted that the Germans won because I absolutely adored that team, I remember thinking how cruel it was because there should have been 25 minutes left in the game. Like the Czechs should have had 25 minutes to come back at the Germans and try and get an equaliser, which based on how the game had gone, they absolutely could have done. In this World Cup, it was it was just so strange. So... In the Sweden-Senegal game, Senegal scored after 104 minutes to end that one. And again, you're, you're cutting off the entirety of that second half. So if that had been a silver goal, it, you know, there would have only been one minute left or whatever uh, to the halftime break. In the South Korea-Italy game, there were only three minutes left when Jung Hwan scored that goal. So... In that one, I, I didn't really have much sympathy for the Italians. Um, but again, in the Senegal-Turkey game, Turkey score after 94 minutes. So again, this 26 minutes just wiped away. I, I think the golden goal was an interesting concept that just didn't work. It just, it took away from what the game is, which is you score, now I have an opportunity to try, and I know how long I have left. I, I have a chance to come back at you here. Um, the silver goal, I didn't mind too much because it didn't end the game. You still got an opportunity to go and try and score a goal, but the golden goal was was very, very harsh. Uh, I mean, I'm not a fan of golden goal itself, but I thought silver goal was an atrocity. I mean, what is the <laughs> point in this? What is the actual point in this to save 15 minutes of football? It just didn't make any sense whatsoever. I don't know. I'm not having it. 
That one belongs in the bin along with many other failed breeds. It's um like I could see why they were trying it, but yeah, I mean it, it just it didn't it didn't work at all. Um I'm just looking at the Ireland versus Spain game. Fernando Morientes scores after eight minutes. Robbie Keane equalises a last-minute penalty. We get it to extra time. Hierro scores. Keane scores. Baraka scores. Matty Holland misses. Juan Fran misses. David Connolly misses. Juan Sebastian or Juan Carlos Valeron misses. Uh, Kevin Kilban misses. Actually, Ireland would have been going first. So Steve Finnan scored our last. And we needed Mendieta to miss, but he was never going to miss. And Spain went through. Um, Ireland's World Cup obviously dominated by the Roy Keane walkout. All things considered, it, it is one of the worst World Cups that we've had. I, I think it's the worst that I've seen. Um, but a lot of that was down to obviously the, just the times that the games were on and how inconvenient it was for us in this part of the world. Um, do you want to hear the all-star team for this World Cup? There's some, there's some good names here, but Go some on. questionable inclusions. So the goalkeepers are Oliver Kahn and Rustu Rekbar, which I think is fair. I think they were the two best keepers in the tournament. Uh, the defenders, Saul Campbell, Fernando Hierro, Hierro Hong Mungbo of South Korea, Alpai Ozalan of Turkey, and Roberto Carlos, Cafu robbed. Um, midfielders, Michael Balak, who obviously, like I said, missed the final through suspension. Claudio Reyna, Rivaldo, Ronaldinho. Now they've, they've messed about there putting Rivaldo in the midfield just because he wasn't. Um, and Yu Sang Chul of South Korea. And then the attacking players, Hassan Sass, that you mentioned earlier on, Ronaldo, Miroslav Klose, and Elhaj Juff. Famous in 10 million. Oh dear God. Lord. Um, golden boot went to Ronaldo. The golden ball for the best player at the tournament went to Oliver Kahn. The Yashin award for best goalkeeper went to Oliver, uh, Oliver Kahn again. Uh, the best young player award went to Landon Donovan. The FIFA fair play trophy went to Belgium. Congrats on your par- uh, participation medal and most entertaining team south korea why not south korea it was entertaining just you know people were on the wrong side of what that entertainment was well let's just let's just pause a minute now and consider the entertainment of the south korean team in this world cup so they play poland and they win 2-0 they draw 1-1 with the united states and then beat portugal 1-0 so four goals in three games uh, in the knockout phases, then, they play the Italians, and the game ends 1-1 and goes to extra time. In the quarterfinals, the game ends 0-0 in an all-time snooze fest. In the semifinals, they lose 1-0. Where was the entertainment? I assume in the post-match discussion of what happened. Of how, how big you- the envelopes of money were. <laughs> That were handed out. And then in the third and fourth place playoff, by the way, they lost to the Turks 3-2. Um, and those third and fourth place playoff games are always awful because no one cares. Um, yeah, 
it's just a strange old World Cup. So Ronaldo gets eight goals, Rivaldo and Closa with five each. John Dahl Thomason and Christian Vieri with four each. John Dahl Thomason, manager of Blackburn Rovers now. Mark Wilmot's Paletta, Papa Bubba Diop, may he rest in peace, known as the Wardrobe. Um, Michael Ballack, Fernando Morientes, Henrik Larsson, Robbie Keane, Raul, and Ilhal Manzis with four out of the bunch with two and a whole bunch with one. Um, yeah, it wasn't a great World Cup, Carol. Uh, I, I've got one thing for you to cheer you up and put this World Cup back on a pedestal. Okay. The last player you mentioned there, out of the players who scored three at the tournament, Ilhan Mansis. Mm. Take yourself a look at his Wikipedia page. I can only assume he's released himself some sort of musical album. So if oh, anybody's yes. listening, go and take a look. The, the 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 ocean background, the jumper, the far-flung look into the distance, it's astonishing. Ilhan Mansis. Okay. So here we go. Il- so Manzi's learned to skate at the relatively late age of 33 and then became a competitive figure skater. All right, there you go. He competed. Still doesn't explain the photo, but yeah. Yeah. No, it doesn't explain the photo. The photo was... He, he didn't qualify for the Olympics. The Olympics was, was the dream and uh, it didn't happen for him. Um... Ilhan Manzis. Jesus. Yeah, we move, we move. Right, Guy, it is your time to uh, give us some stuff to talk about. Oh, it's too hot. Um, Right, David, would you like a player, a country, or a club? Give us a club. Club. Right. Righty, righty, righty. Well, I'm going to pick one. I'm going to pick the worst of these eight for you. What are your memories of Stoke City Football Club? <laughs> this is not random. I need video proof. Of oh, God, this is not random at all. It's definitely been set up here. Well, I think we've all got fond memories of Stoke City. Um, the great Tony Pulis, the man, the myth, the tracksuit. My memories of, of Stoke, them kicking people up in the air violently for most of their tenure in the Premier League, them spending millions and millions and millions every year for the media to then tell us what an incredible job Tony Pulis was doing with the underdogs at Stoke, even though over a five-year span, they had the fifth highest net spend in the Premier League. Um, just to finish 14th every single season. Like, just to give you an example of some of their transfers, in the 09 summer transfer window, Robert Huth for 5 million, Tunkade for 5 million, Dean Whitehead for 5 million, Danny Collins for 2.75 million, Carl's all-time favourite goalkeeper, Asmir Begovic, for 3.25 million, and Diego Arismendi for 2.5. That's a lot of money to spend when you're stoked. That's the better part of 25 million, which sounds like peanuts now, but go back to that point and the vast majority of clubs weren't spending that type of money. You had 
Chelsea, obviously, United some years, we would rarely spend that type of money. Rarely. And when we did, it would be because we had a sale. Their sales that year accounted to about 5 million. So they spent about 21 million net. Um, which, you know, is a, a, a sizable amount of money to be spending. And all of those players, well, most of those players are or were not very good. Um, the previous year, like Dave Kitson, 5.5 million. Sehi Olafinjani for 3 million. They binned him a year later. Abdullah Fay for 2.25 million. Andy Fay for about a million and a half. Andrew Davies, 1.3 million. Ibrahim Asongo for 2 million. Danny Higginbottom for 2 million. Tom Soares for 1.25. Michael Tong from Sheffield United, who I've got a story about in a sec, for 2 million. Uh, Matthew Edrington for 2 million. And James Beattie for 3.5 million. All with very little outgoing. About a couple of hundred grand outgoing. Stoke were spending mass amounts of money every single year to finish 14th. And the media were holding them up as this great example of an underdog who, you know, were battling for every point. But they were spending more than teams that were competing for league titles. Uh, Michael Tong was one of my favourite midfield players for a number of years. So he played for Sheffield United for, well, he came through their academy and then played there for about seven years. But he played against us in, I want to say, it was a League Cup game. He was only young, maybe like 20. I think him and Michael Brown might have been in the team at the same time. Am I right with that? But it was, I think it was the, the game with the spitting incident. Yeah, it was him and Michael Brown in midfield. With, with between Phil Thompson and Neil Warnock had a big falling out over something to do with somebody spit. It might have been Stefan Ancho walked by and spat on the ground or something. And Warnock claimed he'd spat at them. Um, I think that was around the time Julier was, was away from the team when he was ill. But I remember watching Michael Tong, who, who I didn't really know because I didn't see much of him before that, and just thought he was absolutely outstanding because he was two-footed, could carry the ball really well. He's a good passer of the ball. And I was absolutely adamant that we had to sign him for a couple of years. Um, he had a decent enough career, to be fair. The Stoke move didn't work out for him, but he was very good for Sheffield United for a long time. And he's pretty good for Leeds for a couple of seasons. He only actually retired in 2019. Uh, he didn't have the career I had, had predicted for him. Um, but, you know, by the time he got up into the, the Premier League, he was a championship player when I saw him first. He actually performed really well in, in a bad Sheffield United team. Stayed with them when they went down. Moved to Stoke too late in his career. He, 26 or so at the time. He'd, he'd just been indoctrinated into mediocre football for too long. But yeah, Michael Tong was a player I did like and hated when he went to Stoke because I always wanted us to sign him. Anyway, that's me. So Carl can go next. Just a quick question on Stoke. What was your favourite version? That Stoke or the one where they just signed loads of random Barcelona players? Well, the random Barcelona phase also includes the managerial gifts of Mark Hughes. And that's exactly. one of the gifts that keeps on giving like herpes or crabs. Um, I No, it has to be the Pulis version. It has to be the Pulis version. Because there was nothing worse than looking at the fixture list and seeing Stoke on the horizon and knowing 
it was going to be an absolutely disgusting 90 minutes of football. If there was nothing worse than looking through the fixture list and finding Stoke, then why did you put me through the agony every single week of Pulis Watch when you did exactly <laughs> that? Because he was at Borough. He was at Borough. To put you through the agony. Exactly. That was the whole purpose of Tony Pulis Watch. And it will be returning should anybody ever be foolish enough to give him another job. I mean, he's only 64, so he's a young man, still just coming into his prime years. So I definitely think we could uh, we could get watching. Now, you need to be careful as well, because I know you've got your eye on a bit of MLS football. So, you know, oh, yeah. Anthony Pupulis is over there making a name for himself. Now where, the did manager. In, where did Insignia go? Toronto? Toronto FC. Him Imagine him. Little Bernadette. big man up front. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh yeah, Tony's son. Tony's son is over there making a name for himself. Could well be a head coach in MLS quite soon. <laughs> it could happen. It could. There's quite a, quite a lot of um, British players over, or British football players over there doing a lot of uh, coaching and management in MLS and USL. So um, maybe him. Quick, uh, quick finisher on Stoke. The only player we've signed from them since the 1950s. Shaq. Shane Shakiri. And four players that we've sold or released or whatever to them since, um, well, since the 80s, 70s. Uh, Joe Allen, mm-hmm. Charlie Adam, who Stoke. prompted Stoke City fans to stand outside the training ground and sing, We Sign Who We Want, as, <laughs> if, as if it was a good thing that they signed <laughs> Charlie Adam. Um, Did Glenn Johnson go them on a free from us? Glenn Johnson, I think, is the next one, yeah. And he wore number eight and I want to die. I don't think that counts because it was a free but... Yeah, I don't think that one that one's a direct us to them. Let's actually just check. He did he, he, that was his next club, but we didn't, you know. Yeah. Yeah, we released him, didn't we? Because well we, he was shit. And one you won't get from him because it's a youth player and so he won't be very rememberable. It was John Miles, he was a, a striker. Sort of no, player. I don't remember him at all, no. Um, so more. G- give me an Wait. era for the other one. You've mentioned him tonight. I've mentioned him. <laughs> Basically, one of the players that we've spoken about in the World Cup just now. Joe. It was. Salif Joe. That's a shout. Oh, if ever there was a fella born to play for Stoke. Oh, yes. We, did we, we got a bit of money. Did we get money for him? No, I he went on loan and then he then he went on a permanent. It was a pay up the contract, wasn't it? So yeah, it was basically go away. Um, yeah, other a couple of uh, old, 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 very great to good Liverpool players. Willie Stevenson went from us to them back in the late sixties, and Alec Lindsay in the late seventies. Alec Lindsay was a crack of a player. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, what a guy Salif Joe is. Istanbul, cost us a load of money. Was useless for the five years. Five years we had him under contract. He went on loan three times, and only one of them wanted to keep him. Um, God, yeah, like it's funny with Salif Joe. He plays twenty. He plays forty games in his first season because that's how many it took to realize this guy can't play. Hmm. Plays seven games the next season. Then 14, goes on loan to Birmingham, plays twice in a six-month loan. Uh, then he goes to Portsmouth, 
plays 12 times in a year-long loan, and then he goes to Stoke in the Championship. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Played 29 times in the Championship that year. Yeah. Ah, look, I hope he's hope he's happy and prosperous wherever it is he happens to be these days. Absolutely. Now, Carl, would you like a player, a team, or a country? Let's, let's go for country. We've, we've done a few countries, so oh, yes. let's carry that theme on. I will do that again, because you cannot talk about any of them teams. We go again. Right, I've got... I'll let you choose between these two, because I've got four random ones and two of them you can't. Would you like to talk about USA or Cameroon? Ooh. Let's go for USA. Let's go for USA because there's a bit of a, a future. When we will they win play. the World Cup? When? Yes. They won't. It's, the laws of averages state they will win the World Cup. Not, not in my lifetime, I don't think. Interesting. That's not me suggesting to the wider world, by the way, that you know I, I want to be gone before. So yeah. if they win in 2026, 2026 you've got, to, well, you've, got well. you've got to go. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be me or them. Um, oh, United States, right. Anytime I talk about United States, um, not right now, but thinking back of when I first watched them, the first image, the first team that comes to mind, Kobe Jones, Alexi Lalas, Tony Miola. That was um, quite an eclectic mix at the time. Very, very larger than life characters. Actually really good on the ball. I think the big problem at that time with the USA international side was there was not uh, that level of play all over the pitch. They were very reliant on a few really, really experienced players. Like a big group of them got like over 120 caps sort of thing. And uh, maybe the organisation wasn't there as well. There was obviously some individual talent and some athleticism. And it was a bit of a, a mix of the quite good and the not very good at all. Um, but it was quite fun watching watching like a new nation emerging and trying to get to grips with how things were. And obviously, then I would start to read up on how the domestic league was going. And oh my god, that was a that was a, a roller coaster of a journey finding out all the different things that they had done and tried to do the NASL and how that went. The attempts to implement all these mad rules in a slightly new league which never quite got off the ground but things like having draws decided by a 30-yard run-in on the goalkeeper instead of a penalty shootout and all this kind of stuff it was i'd be bringing that back now that's much <laughs> better than a penalty shootout it, I, to be fair i would do that now instead of a penalty shootout but this was in league play if you drew the game they couldn't have yeah. that at the end of that i i, I wouldn't like that. you do hate draws carl I do hate draws, but I, I play for, oh, I don't play, I wish I played. I support a good side. Um, I think it's very, very important for teams who are not of the elite to still have that capacity to take results. And I think if you work that hard for 90 minutes and get a draw plus, against Manchester. Plus imagine team. having Allison in this 1v1 penalty yeah. shootout thing. Free win. Imagine seeing players shit themselves on the run up. Yeah. You, you just know as they're like, Still 25 yards from goal. This one is missing. He, this, this guy's definitely missing. Exactly. I mean, you just talking about that Stoke side before. I mean, how would it be if you had to watch like, like about their most skillful player for a while was what Jonathan Walters? And I wouldn't exactly say oh, he was yes. ribbling was amongst his best traits or characteristics, you know, let alone composure in one on one situations and all that. You know, teams who, who are built like this, I think it's important that they can still have that outlet to a successful results. Like, a draw, basically. 
No, so, they just get Rory the lap to start. <laughs> he's not going to take it. He's going to throw it from halfway. You've got to catch it or it's going. Thirty throw-ins, yeah. Um, so this this United States adventure, the whole thing was like quite a, a wild thing to get caught up in at the time, start mm. of the early nineties and all the rest of it. And there have been like some moments in international football for the United States where I thought like they were on the verge of doing really good bits. Like when they had Jurgen Klinsmann as manager, the the atmosphere around the national team at the start was really, really good. They had a few really good young players coming through, obviously. It got a bit toxic towards the end and people didn't really like um being in charge and all the rest of it. But for a while there, they've, they've had a few times where they looked like they could have really gone on and, and not just had a good side, but I mean, a really good production line and a route to uh, being in the in the senior setup. Um, people like, let's say Josh Wolf, for example, as a player who looked like they could go on and be European caliber starting forwards. And they were very, very young into the national team setup and having a good impact at the start of it. But then when either the move comes or they make a, a change to another uh, MLS side and it doesn't quite work out for them. The thing that USA did for quite a long time was keep these people in the team and try to build the team around them and let them sort of work through at club level. And it was almost like club football and international football were kind of like separate beasts. You know, you've got yeah. your spot starting 11 in the, in the USMNT and it doesn't really matter what happens to you elsewhere. And I think that it took them quite a long time to get, get past that, um, separation, if you like. And now at the moment, there's reason for optimism. I think that there's some decent players in the squad, but I don't think it's necessarily at the, the highest point that it's ever been, to be honest. I think even if you look at their neighbours, Mexico's obviously historically been their big rival from, from Central America, but I would say even like Canada at the minute are uh, surpassed USA now in terms of planning and uh, generation of younger players' opportunities and getting good players to go and play for good clubs. I mean, you look through the US squad now they've got a lot of players in europe but whether they are all very very good players in europe not really sure i mean a, a few of them are obviously at a, a bit of a point of they will or they won't right now people like brendan aronson obviously just transferred to leeds really talented player still quite young will the move work for him all yet to be decided but then they've got people like weston mckenney who we've spoken about before I'm, I'm a big fan of his um people like who should we say Chris Richards has gone to Palace, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it, yeah, like, I mean, it's, it's like, a good squad, like, you know. decent squad, but I don't think it's that, that good. I mean, when you're still relying on people like Cameron Carter-Vickers yeah. to come in, like your new defensive pillar, I think it shows that you've still got quite a way to go. Well, when DeAndre Yedlin has 74 caps, I think there's a problem somewhere because DeAndre Yedlin has about as much footballing ability as a turnip. He can just run really fast. Um, so, you know, the, the, the move is to get him out of the team. Um, but, you know, like there is a good generation of young players. I, I think Pulisic is probably the oldest of that group, that sort of the next generation. And he's 23 now. He seems to have been around forever. I think, Carl, one of the problems is they play too much football, too young. Like the examples I'd look at, if you look at, say, the Pulisic, as an example, has 51 caps at 23 years of age. To me, that's just too many. You know, I just think that's too much international football for a player to have, especially when 
they're based in Europe and they're having to travel back all the time. But let's look at Jose Altador for a sec, who came to Europe a couple of times, had some good spells, had some bad spells, but he broke through with the New York Red Bulls at 17, was in the first team, was playing well. At 19, he's on his way to Villarreal. He flops there. He ends up at Hull. He flops there. He ends up at AZ Alkmaar. He does really well. Sunderland by him, it's a disaster. Goes to Toronto FC, does really well there. But he has 115 international caps. And if you look, he's only got five in the last two years. So he'd won 110 caps in 10 years by the age of 28. 110 caps by 20. This is too much football. Isn't it, a bit Germa- isn't it a bit Germanic, though? Don't Germany have loads of players with over 100 caps? Yeah, but they're all in their mid-30s <laughs> by the time. And that, they was, that was a successful team as well. Well, yeah, yeah. I know, I'm just saying, but compared like, to... They're going deep in tournaments and stuff, so you're getting 10, yeah, 11 true. games in in international tournament years, whereas like, Josie Altero played 17 international games in one year when he was mm. 20. Two years later, he plays 13. Two years later, 14, then 10, 13, 10, 11. Like, there's a, what's that? There's a nine-year stretch where the lowest he has is seven in a year. It's just far too much football for young players. There's not enough, there's not enough been put on development. It's get them to the point where they're ready to play and then let them have at it. There doesn't seem to be any plan once they get to the point where they're on the doorstep of the national team. And there also seems to be, in recent years, some big giddy-up to get them all to Europe as quickly as possible. Like, Ricardo Pepe wasn't ready to move to Europe. He just wasn't. And he has looked like a fish out of water at Augsburg. Whereas he was having his first good season at the MLS level. Like, surely there's some sort of guidance there where these players can be given, you know, better advice. Don't be moving to Europe at 19 if you're not ready, if you've only got one season. Like, and if you are going to move, you really should be going across into an academy setting at that age. But when Augsburg are paying $20 million plus add-ons for a guy, they're expecting him to come across and be first team ready straight away. And Ricardo Pepe just was nowhere close to first team ready. The kid is still only 19. He he won't turn 20 until January, a year after he moved to Oldsburg. Like, that's, that's just, there's a lack of care there. But it's funny, you mentioned that 94 squad, and like Tony Miola was, was a great goalkeeper at his best. Um, Alexi Lalas was, is a pillock, but he had a great beard and, and goatee combination. But you look to that squad, and it's, it's, funny how many of them actually came to England quite early. Like, Kobe Jones spent a year at Coventry. Uh, Miola spent a year between Brighton and Watford when he was 21. John Harkes obviously was in England for years. Sheffield Wednesday, Derby, West Ham, and alone at Nottingham Forest a little bit later on. Roy Wegerly was in, was in, in England from 1986. He came across with Chelsea had a loan at Swindon, played for Luton, played for 
Queen's Park Rangers, played for Blackburn, played for Coventry. Like, you forget that there were Americans coming over that early into the English game. It's not just a, a recent years thing. Um, the one I'm really excited about, and I want you to give me one from this squad that you're really high on. It doesn't have to be that you think they're going to be a great player, just someone you really like. I really like Eunice Musa. I, I think there's something about his game that if harnessed properly, he could be a really special footballer. Um, I think he's one that Arsenal could regret losing when he went to Valencia. Now, I'd like to see him away from Valencia, away from the chaos of that club. But I do think he's had a couple of good seasons back-to-back. I'd like to see him add more goals to his game. Um, But, you know, for a guy that, again, he only committed to play for the national team in 2001. He's still 19. He's got 19 caps. He's got 19 caps. Too many. Just far too many caps to be having already. Eight this year, nine last year. Eight this year, we're only in July. He's easily going to hit double figures. Like The US men's national team, they play too many games. Yeah, I think obviously a lot of that it comes from like the Gold Cup and when they have those competitions on in the same years, they have to have the qualifiers and all that. It, it, it does really quickly mount up. And I did like, there was a point, I can't remember who the manager was at this point, but they had... Um, one period where they just used like MLS-based players or you know home-based players uh, for for those minor or more minor cup competitions, and maybe called up one or two of the more experienced players to help them along, sort of thing. And I think that that was probably a slightly better balance rather than continually calling people back from Europe for a qualifier against somebody they're going to beat seven 0 anyway. To be honest, in the first round before it gets to the hex, you know, for their World Cup qualifier, which I think is now the octagon, isn't it? In fact. Mm. Um, so, yeah, out of the current squad, Yunus Musa is definitely the most talented outside of, obviously, Christian Pulisic, who we already know everything about anyway. Um, I, I think Musa has got probably the highest ceiling to go there out of the, out of the current group. I do also really like Karen Acosta, uh, who's at LAFC now. Turn the clock back maybe three, four years ago, I thought he could probably go a little bit higher or maybe make the move to Europe a little bit earlier, but as an all-round midfielder, really athletic, technically pretty sound. Uh, I, I think he's probably one of the main ones that they should be building around now. You know, he's a very confident player, uh, doesn't really have too many overall shortcomings. There are a few who are maybe not so much involved at the minute because of club form, injuries, that sort of thing. Like Serginio Dest, I think, has got really good capacity to be good for the United States and the way that they play and how they need you know, the extra speed and the energy and the rest of it. I think, again, with him, it's about finding his best role, whether he is going to be a fullback for them or a wider outlet higher up the pitch. Um, there are a couple of people who have just started to break into the international scene and maybe not picked up too many caps yet. Um, remember Liverpool had Brooks Lennon in the academy for a couple of years. Mm. He, uh, you know, he's been on the verge of things at times and um, I suppose it depends if he can find a bit more consistency with Atlanta really, but he's a, he's a good player and he has been capped at, at full senior level now. Um, I guess the problem with the USA is, like a lot of the time, there's so many players who are capable of being in the squad as like those those fringe players, if you like. There's there's a lot to choose from, um, depending on if you're going to be sort of home-based squads or you're looking for the best players overseas. And what you just mentioned there before about that push to get them out overseas as early as possible, two parts of the reason here. One, obviously, some clubs have that as their model and that they want or need to be able to sell them overseas, especially if that comes from the USL rather than MLS. And the other is that the players think they're going to get more recognition that way. 
and possibly that is the case you know if you go over there like someone like uh, let's say Matthew Hopp for example I don't think he's necessarily been anywhere near star quality but he's getting recognized because he's playing in Europe that definitely plays a part of it I mean Josh Sargent if he was playing the exact same performances he did last season of Norwich but doing it for I don't know, New England Revs or someone like that would he have stood out he wouldn't have but because he's in the Premier League he gets that sort of extra maybe not recognition or you, know, you don't get a free pass and just be in the squad straight away but he's at least being looked at a lot more regularly than he would do if he was just a you know, middle of the road MLS sort of side so I can understand it from their point of view plus obviously financially it's a, it's a better thing to be in Europe's top leagues if that's where you can get to but um, for the national team I'm not sure it's the best immediate way for them to develop no, I don't think it is either. I'm just looking at games played by the U.S. men's national team by decade. Okay. So in the, sorry, this, between 1916 and 1949, they played 33 games, right? So about one a year. They, they weren't really a, a thing then. In the fifties, they played 15 games. The sixties, they played 19 games. The seventies, they played 49 games. The 80s, they played 55 games. In the 90s, the U.S. men's national team played 198 games. 198 games in 10 years. It's nearly 20 a year. In the 2000s, they played 172. So again, 17 a year. In the 2010s, they played 190. 190 games, 19 a year. That's ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. And in this decade, which, bear in mind, COVID has had a massive impact, they've already played 36 games. We're only in the third year of this decade, and COVID stopped football for a long time. That is ludicrous. Nobody needs to be playing that many games. I don't care what their qualifying situation is. If it calls you to play this many games, make a change. Make a change because that is utterly ridiculous. And you can't call up the same squad of players game after game after game if you're playing 20, 17 and 19 games per year. You just can't. It's too many games players, which means... You have no continuity in your squad. Now, we both have our issues with Southgate. But one of the things he's done really well with England is he's had continuity in the squad. Now, I don't, as you know, I don't rate Tyron Mings or Connor Cody or a lot of the players he calls up. But one of the reasons he sticks with them is because it's continuity in the squad. He doesn't want eight to ten new faces in every squad. It's one or two new faces bring them in, ease someone out, and that's how you change over. This US thing is an absolute farce. Like, in the last, where are we? Where's the current squad? So, in the last 12 months, outside of the, the last squad, which had three goalkeepers, nine defenders, so 12, uh, seven midfielders, gives us 19, and seven hackers. So a squad of 26, right? That's 26 players just in the last squad. There were also four goalkeepers called up in the previous 12 months. There were five, mm. 10, 17 defenders, 
eight midfielders and five, ten, thirteen strikers. Like that's nearly fifty play. That's what. That's what over fifty players plus the others. Like that's ridiculous. That's seventy players. Seventy players called up in twelve months, Carl. I'm sorry, I don't care what national team you are. You don't have seventy players good enough to play for your national team. No, um, and I think that obviously a lot of the time they're not, <laughs> and that's probably reflected in the number of caps that some of them have. Um, like I say, I understand you've got to have a pathway there, and you've got to be able to give some of them the opportunity. But like people getting called up at eighteen years of age and not playing a game or playing one game, and then not playing again until the twenty-four in some cases that we've seen before. Mm. USA have played or have got scheduled fifteen games for this year already, and that's yeah. without any friendlies right before the World Cup or without them getting through to the knockouts, obviously, which will add to it if they if they progress. So it is, again, a really, really heavy uh, workload in terms of the national team fixture list. Next season is not going to be any different at all. Um, they're in the Nations League uh, matches, which are those ones against like Grenada and El Salvador and that. So those, you would think, will be, again, the ones that they call up more home-based players for, that sort of thing. So, again, you're looking at a pool of Another 20 to 30 players who are probably not in the list at the moment. Probably not going to be any of them involved in the World Cup squad. So it's going to be all changed all tomorrow. Yeah. There has to have been, since the start of this decade, minimum 100 players called up the national team squad. Minimum. It's absolutely ridiculous. Like, there's just no explanation for having that many players in and around your national team. You can't build any continuity. You can't even know enough about the players to warrant having them in the squad. Just, it's just not possible as the manager. Like, I know he's going to have staff and he'll have scouts that will go and watch players, but for him personally, there's no way he's getting round to see all 70 of the players he's had in his squad this year. What they really need to do is, is have their first team squad of 25 players and then have a B squad of mostly, you know, home based or, you know, based in Canada or Mexico or South America, or whatever, short travel players who can play the secondary games. But the first thing they need to do is find ways to cut games from that schedule. If they're playing any friendly matches, they need to bin them off because there's just no room in your schedule for them. And I would say it's a massive failure on behalf of people like Ernie Stewart, um, who is the, the general manager or sporting director of the United States Soccer Federation. Just needs to do better. Just needs to do much better at Giving, like, give your team a fair shot at this. That's ludicrous to have that many players called up within 12 months. Absolutely ludicrous. Like, there's just no need for it. You need seven goalkeepers for in a year. Ridiculous. Shall we move on to a random player? Yes, let's move on to a random player. So we're, I think we're over an hour, well, a decent amount over an hour now. So we'll do one random player each. So we'll go with yours first, Dave. Right, we have six players, and I'm going to pick three for you to speak about. 
Okay. Or to choose from, I should say. So you got Maradona, Iniesta, or Seador. Who do you want to pe- speak about? Um, I mean Maradona. I mean, he's the reason I fell in love with football. He's, to me, the greatest player, or he's the best player the game has ever seen. I I can see the argument that Messi's the greatest player because of the longevity, the consistency, the fact that when we talk about who the best player in the world was at a certain point, there's nobody who retained that mantle for as long as Messi, who, you know, 09, I would say, is when he ascended to being the best player on the planet, all the way through to 2019. He was the best player in the world. And that, that is unmatched. Nobody has ever sustained that level. Um, but I don't think we've ever seen anybody hit a peak like Maradona hit. If you look at when he joins Napoli, who, let's be fair, were a second tier team in the overall hierarchy of Syria. He went up against the greatest club side of all time, in my view, in Saki's Milan. And he took not one, but two league titles off them. He also won a UEFA Cup and a Coppa Italia. And that was off the back of single-handedly carrying Argentina to a World Cup. And then four years later, he carries them to a World Cup final. I think from 86 to 90, that run of Maradona is unmatched in the game. And I know he doesn't have the gaudy numbers of a Messi, but he's playing more as a midfielder than Messi ever did. And he's still, you know, 17 goals, 21 goals, 19 goals and 18 goals across those four years. Um, I think that plus double figures assist, similar numbers to what he has there playing in a team that doesn't have nearly the level of talent as that great Milan team or into the 90s as great as a lot of teams that were in Syria at the time, like even Sampdoria, Inter had more talent than that Napoli team. But he was just able to elevate everybody around him. And then obviously you look at that Argentinian team that he won the World Cup with, and it's a great team. There's great players in it, but there's him, and then there's an enormous gap to everybody else. And if you look at the team that played in that World Cup final, I mean, Luis, uh, Jose Luis Brown, Jose Luis Casufo, uh, Neri Pompeo in goal, I forgot to mention. mention. Uh, Oscar Ruggiero was a great defender. Of the three at the back, he's probably the best known. None of that midfield, Barbara Chaga, are particularly well known. And it's him up front with uh, Jorge Valdano, who's the former, who's, who's probably best known for his time as the general manager of Real Madrid rather than anything he did as a player. And yet Maradona took them against a German team with Tony Schumacher in goal, who's one of the best keepers ever, Karl-Heinz Foster, Thomas Berthold and Andreas Bremer in their defence, Lothar Matthäus and Felix Magat in midfield, and Karl-Heinz Rummenigge and Klaus Olofs up front, plus the likes of Litbarski and Rudy Voller coming off the bench. There is no way Argentina 
don't get thumped by that team without Maradona. And yet they go on and beat them 3-2. All while he has Lothar Mateus, who's arguably the greatest midfield player of all time. I think you can make a strong case for him because he could play as a 6, an 8 or a 10 at a world-class level. He has him following him around the pitch, kicking him up in the air with no other task for the game other than to follow Maradona. And he still runs the game. He still leads his team to victory. I just think Maradona is the best player we've ever seen. Messi's the greatest because of the longevity and how long he sustained it. But for me, nobody has hit a four-year level like Maradona did for club and country. Now you're free to pick from, Carl. And if you don't pick one of these, you're going to ruin the title of the podcast. And my day. So you've got Tiago Alcantara, Joshua Kimmich, and James Milner. <laughs> right, after Diego Maradona, I have to go for James Milner, don't I? You it's do. It's, it's the pass the world needed to see. The torch was passed. Yeah. <laughs> From cocaine to Ribena. <laughs> <laughs> Um, James Milner, where do we start? James Milner, when I first did not lay eyes on him, but laid eyes on his name, he was maybe the best 15-year-old I'd ever seen by his stats on Champman. So I immediately decided that I'd sign him, I'd bring him through into the youth team, and I'd keep an out for him in real life. And uh, now I found out he was on the bench, obviously, a couple of months later for Leeds. Got to see his debut. And uh, now he's ended up winning the league and the Champions League and everything else with the club that I paid for. I, goodness me, I keep saying I play for Liverpool. I promise you, I don't play for Liverpool. I wish I did. He has won everything with the club I support. So, although he has no idea who I am, I have been keeping very close tabs on James Milner all the way through. And it's uh, quite a, a funny thing to me every time we either do an interview with him or, you know, he's doing that one of his little post-match sound bites and everything like that. Because, you know, back in the day when I was a very young lad sat at the computer clicking the mouse, I would hold uh, imaginary press conferences in my head with him answering the questions. So there you go. There's a little story about me and James Milner for you. I'm sure at some point I had my bean while I was doing it. Absolutely. Do you think if it... Because at Villa, I always remember, it was the three behind the Carew or Heskey at the time. It was Milner, Young and... Uh, Downing was it at the time? I think it was Downing. Um, but Milner, he went to Man City and then became a squad player. Do you think if he moved to, I don't know, us or Arsenal or something, he would have been seen as a more. I'm not trying to think of the right word, but more of a recognised good player? Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe, but I think Milner's, obviously, his, his output didn't change at Man City. His outlook on the game didn't change when he went to Man City. You know, he, he went there and he was already what he was in terms of like he would put the team first, he would you know do whatever was needed, he would shuffle around positions, he played central midfield, he played on the wing, he played as a support player and everything else. He was he was always doing this. It wasn't just at Man City that that happened for him. Um I mean maybe you can say that he obviously would have had more minutes and he might have had a single settled role. That could possibly mm. have happened. But also I I think it's probably underlooked, underrated how much Milner probably added to that Man City dressing room because you got to remember this was a side that was 
taken big strides like quicker than they'd ever done before this wasn't um it wasn't like they went from you know Richard Dunn straight away to uh Carlos Tevez or anything like that there were a few steps in between so there were mm-hmm. some players who bridged that gap but there were big ego players in there and players who would probably by that point expecting because of the transfer fee that they paid the salary they were probably getting maybe there would have been some in there who were not really doing the work rate or not really expecting to have to do the defensive stuff and not really want anything else other than the glamour of the move to this newly rich club right I would imagine that people like him James Milner coming in was a, a big strategic thing as much as anything else you know as much of a footballing reason for where he could play and what he could do it was also to ensure that there was still this very very strong-minded group within the squad who could make sure everyone was training make sure everyone was working hard make sure no one was being a prick basically and we really think at 24 though that Milner had that sort of sway not 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 in terms of like the dressing room but I think in terms of you know from from literally from a teenager we've we've heard his coaches and the players that he was playing with Saying that he was always like one of the first in for training, one of the ones who was always making a really big impact on people by the amount of work rate he did. Remember when Beckham went over to play for Real Madrid? It was exactly the same. It wasn't about him being a star. He went in there and showed this bunch of stars, this is how you get to be even better, by working really hard and won their respect that way. I think that, yeah, Milner definitely would have been exactly the same for that. I think the move to City, I think, elevated... James Milner and how he's seen because if you look at the teams that James Milner played in beforehand at Leeds, at Newcastle and at Villa when he was a starter they were all fairly run-of-the-mill teams you know they they get what would be Europa League now or Conference League now but they weren't really threatening to win much of anything he got to a League Cup final with Villa um, but was that, that was his level as a starter, and that that would still have been his level as a starter. Yes, but as a yeah, squad player, he had so much more value as a squad player than he ever did as a starter because you could throw him in at right back and he'd give you six out of ten. You could throw him in on the left wing and he'd give you six out of ten. You could put him on the right of midfield as more natural position and he'd give you seven out of ten. And in the following week, he's out of the team for a couple of games and then he's back or and he can come off the bench and he can help you see a game out. He can help you change the formation if you're chasing a game. So his real value has always been as a squad player. James Milner's never been good enough to be a starter in a team winning honours. If you look at all the honours he has, he's always been a squad player. Now he did start a bunch of games for City, obviously, in especially in the first league title win. But he didn't have a set position. You know, he played right wing, left wing, played in the midfield three, played up front in one game, played full back. That's where Milner's, Milner's ability to be six out of 10 in a bunch of positions is more valuable than his ability to be a seven out of 10 player as a starter. And when we signed him, you could see that we weren't particularly good when he was a starter. I know we got to a European Cup final, but that was, he was the worst player in that team, Bar Lovren. We had Van Dyke, we had Salah, we had Mane, we had Ginny Wijnaldum. We had really good players in that, Andy Robertson, really good players in that team. I thought you were about the Europa League, yeah. Oh, no, no, no. God, no. God, no. Um, but again, like you look at, you look at Milner and his career and 
pretty much all of the cups he's won, uh, he wasn't a starter. You look at his FA Cup with uh, City, I think he came off the bench. I think it was the same thing with his League Cup with City. Uh, came off the bench, obviously, for us in the two cups we, we, we won. Um, the finals that he started, I think he's lost all of them. So his his best role has always been as a squad player. His ability to just fit in. And I think I think a lot of Milner's ability or Milner's traits as a leader and, and standard setter get overblown. Not not to say that it's not important, but I think people hear, you know, James Milner helps set the standards at the club. And they think, you know, he's in there and he's rah, rah, rahing and he's grabbing lads and he's telling them, you know, this, that and the other thing. And it's not that. James Milner's ability has always been to go in and do his job to the very best of his ability and just get on with things, regardless of whether he's in the team or out of the team, regardless of whether he's starting in his preferred position or he's been asked to play left back. He just gets on with it. And Carl mentioned the big egos at City. And I would say there were some enormous egos in that Manchester City squad. Uh, number nine, Emmanuel Adebayor, being a prime example, who barely played that season, was known to be disruptive. But I think having the likes of Milner, one Milner can balance out kind of two Adebayors because lads will look at a Milner and think, well, he's just getting on with so Let's just fucking get on with it. Let's just get on and do what we've been asked to do. If he's willing to do it, we can do it as well. Because, you know, he did arrive at City for big money. I think they paid, yeah. was it 20 million? Yeah, not sure. 20 million pounds. There was, there was a, you know, obviously the part of the transfers that City had to make at that time because they were signing so many overseas players was to buy English players. I mean, there was John, yes. got like the sum of the four, I think it was. And I'm not sure. Like Gareth Barry. As well. Yeah. Alan. So like, they, they did have to, they did have to bring in home-based players as well. And Milner was at that time, I think, someone who you would look at outside the top six was probably around the top of that group. Mm. I think that's probably fair to say. You know, he was playing really well for Villa. He was playing really regularly for Villa. I don't think, like I said at the start, I don't think he would have ever have been necessarily a better player, a bigger player, if he'd have gone one step below City or if he'd have stayed at the same level as Villa. Now, Villa were basically the next team at that point. You know, they were they were not the Champions League sides, but the ones... They finished that, sixth, yeah. They were in that Europa League sort uh, of battle. Yeah, so I don't think that there was anywhere else for him to go other than this. This is which, what I just said at the start. I don't think he would have been a different player. I think you by that point, you already knew what you were getting. He was not a youngster who was going to improve his end product or something like that. This was just about learning curve of the game, basically, that you get between sort of 23 and 28 sort of thing. That's That's the additional game time and the additional experiences that you will have by being on the pitch. He wasn't going to become a functionally a different player or a more exciting player because of it. It was just going to be a starter at the same sort of level or he would mm. go a little bit higher and be a bit of a squad player maybe. If he had a really yeah. great season, like he was like, um, who can we relate this to? Let's say when Dirk Cout went right wing for Liverpool, right? He was not necessarily unbelievably good every single game, but he had everything off the ball, everything tactically, everything mentally, everything uh, athletically that you would want, and therefore he started every single game. Now, Milner has maybe not been quite as uh, end product as Cal was because he was forward and maybe hasn't quite had the um, 
settled role that Cout did after that period because he's played for teams with much bigger squads and much bigger spending power than we had at the time. Basically, then if that Cout didn't play, it was like, all right, let's bring in this 16-year-old or stick David Engvall out right wing or something like that. that Nabil Elzar. Exactly. That was what Liverpool's squad was at that time. So I would suspect that if Milner had have gone to like ourselves or Arsenal at that sort of time instead of City, it would have been a similar thing. He would have played nearly every single week in that right-sided role. You're out of the way, but you'll protect your defender, you'll do the job, and you focus on improving the rest of the team each summer. That's what would have happened for Milner, I think. So he's picked you know, this way instead, and it's not exactly worked out badly for him, has it? That was a good Villa team as well. Like, they finished sixth three years in a row. Milner was there for two of them. Um, but you look at some of the names, like Gareth Barry had a, had a very long, productive career. Uh, Ashley Young is still playing, has had a long, productive career. He obviously played, um, in the front three. Um, you had Gabby Agbon Lahore. Again, a fairly long career. Not, not very good, but he was a, a, around a long time. Cillian Petrov in midfield. Brad Friedel in goal. Curtis Davies, who at one point looked like he could become an England international, still going at Derby at centre back. And Luke Young at right back, who Roy Hodgson tried to sign for us and turned us down. Uh, Milner in midfield. Nigel Rio, Rio Coker, who again had a long career. Carlos Quayler. Uh, John Carew. Like, there's a lot of decent players there. And then they just needed more goals to get over the. That's literally it. So Gareth Barry leaves in the summer of 09 and they bring in Stuart Downing and obviously James Collins and Richard Dunn and the less said about them, the better. But, you know, they brought in Stuart Downing in the hope of turning things around a little bit for them. And again, you've got, you know, you've got Milner, uh, Petrov and Trying to think who the third midfielder that year would have been. Steve Sidwell. So that's your midfield three. And then you've got Downing, Ashley Young, and Gabby Agbon Lahore as your front three. Like it's a solid team. It's not spectacular in any way, but it's a solid team full of lads that won a lot of international caps and played for a long, long time. And that is, that is Milner's level as a starter is sixth which was absolutely fine. But for him to take his career to the next level, he had to put his ego, be whatever ego he might have, every footballer has an ego, but he had to park that, go to City and accept that I'm not going to be a starter every game. In the best 11, I probably don't get in the team, but I can be super valuable here by being like the 12th man. And if I'm the 12th man, and anyone in five or six positions misses out, I can step in, and I won't be brilliant, but I won't be terrible. I might not win you a game, but I won't lose you a game either. So that, that's why I do think he's actually had the best version of his career by becoming a squad player. Because I think if he'd stayed as a, as a starter, there was nowhere really for him to go other than you know, a sidewards move. You look at that Premier League season as last year with um with Villa. Chelsea win the league, he's not good enough to go there. Arsenal or United finish second, he's not good enough to go there. He was probably good enough to go to Arsenal in a squad role, 
In fact, he was definitely good enough to go to Arsenal in a squad role or Tottenham in a squad role. Same thing with City. But City obviously had much greater ambition. Now, at the time, he probably could have joined us and become a starter. That was probably the one big club he could have gone to and become a starter because we just weren't in great shape at the time. We just didn't have 28 mil to spend. <laughs> we didn't have that type of money. No, like we just didn't have that type of money at all. Um, in fact, if you look at the summer of 2010, when he moved to City, we signed mm. um, Raul Morales for 11.5 million, Paul Kincheski for 3 million, Brad Jones for 2.3 million, Christian Poulsen for 14.5 million, Danny Wilson for 2 million, John Joe Shelby for 1.7, and we got uh, Jovanovic and Cole on free. So we spent less total than City spent on James Miller. That's just where we were at the time. And a lot of that we still shouldn't have spent. I I would say all of that. Morellas was good for about nine games. We got money um, back as well. We got we got money for him as well. So yeah, but all the rest we got these we got money for Shelby to be fair, but none of the rest worked out. Uh, I think it's fair to say that was a particularly dark time for us. But we should end it there. Uh, we have gone from the 2002 World Cup. Well, it started with Brazil. It became about the World Cup. We talked about the U.S. men's national team. Uh, I am still. A- Outraged by 198 games in 10 years. Um, that's just absolutely ri- ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. 560 games in, in 30 years. <laughs> that's absolutely ridiculous. Um, we have talked about Diego Maradona and we've talked about James Milner. Possibly the only time those two players will ever be discussed back to back in a podcast. Well, Carol, have you got anything coming out this week that you want people to know about? Uh, I will have a few bits, but they're not finished and set for dates yet, so we'll leave that. Um, I would probably say that this podcast and how we've ended it is a good reason why when anybody brings up trophies as a measure of how players are against one another, you should immediately smash them in the face with a dustbin lid and then put them in, Sid. I think that's fair. We will leave it there. We'll see you later in the week. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.